chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 16 through 40 at this point. And one of the challenges, I think, that um, just comes up as we spend significant amount of time in each book of the Bible. I mean, we're, we're a little bit more than halfway through the book of Acts, but we've also been here for a little bit more than a little bit more than a year. So um, one of the challenges that that happens is that we forget why the book was written in the first place. And when we forget why the, the letter was written in the first place, then um, when we forget the author's purpose, we can easily um, become really narrow in our... We, I think it's really easy for us to misunderstand perhaps what the text is saying. For instance, in the book of Acts, it's really easy to... Um, get to a place where all we're doing is um, looking at interesting people going to exotic places, focusing on extraordinary events like earthquakes and prison breaks and shipwrecks and things like that, which are all fascinating. But I think when we end up focusing there, we miss the purpose of why these accounts are given to us. And I want us to keep in mind this morning as we, as we consider the book of Acts and we're looking at Paul and Silas and Luke and, and Timothy in the, the city of Philippi, we need to remember that this text today isn't simply about earthquakes and prison breaks and um, supernatural um, events but Luke has told us there's a number of reasons why uh, we have the book of Acts. But recall, one of the things that Luke has told us in the book of Acts, and that is that he is writing about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, he's referring back to his former letter, the, the Gospel of Luke. And he's saying, these are the things that Jesus began, began being the key word there, began to do and teach. And so in the book of Acts, we're seeing the things that Jesus then be, continue to do that picks up the work that Jesus began in his um, earthly ministry. And now he's continuing that work. Only now he's continuing it through his church, through his people. Um, and uh, primarily we, we see the, the, the person of Peter and the person of Paul working through those particular individuals um, being the focus. So this is what Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts picks those things up. So in other words, what I want to do is I want to see how is the work of Christ being accomplished in the text, in our account here in the city of Philippi. So let me catch everybody up on where, we're, where we've been and then I'll uh, take us a little bit forward as to where we're going and uh, I lost my little laser pointer again, which is pretty normal. Um, but I just forget to turn it off and then the battery dies. But Paul and his companions are in Philippi and they're there by the, the Spirit's leading. And Philippi is way up, up on top. There you go. Look at that. There we are. Got a mouse up there. Thank you, Jesse. Um, they're up there in Philippi. They've gotten there by the Spirit's leading. They've shared the gospel. Last week we saw they shared the gospel with a group of women who were God-fearers. They, uh, they were, they were uh, interested in the things of God. They had rejected Roman paganism. Um, and the Lord, in, as they are sharing the gospel with this group of women, the Lord opens Lydia's heart um, and she is converted. Um, she pre prevails upon the missionary team um, to lodge at her house, which they did for some time. And I think also perhaps either at her house or at, uh, at the, the jailer's, who's, jailer's house, who we're going to see today, um, became the meeting place for the local church there in Philippi. So that should kind of get us all caught up. Remember, this is the second missionary journey. Um, Paul went with Barnabas a while back and uh, uh, shared the gospel. This is their second trip to expand the gospel into the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's kind of where we've been. Let me give you an idea of where I hope to go today. So as we move forward, um, what I hope to do today is I want to look at three more events. There are three more events that are covered in this particular chapter. And all three of these events highlight our theme of the triumph of the gospel because in these events, Christ is, continues to rule. 
continues to demonstrate his rule over all and establishes church in ever-expanding areas. And so Christ is um, confirming that he rules over all. There is nowhere and no place where Christ is not king. And this is one of the reasons why I believe Luke begins, with the, Luke begins the book of Acts with the ascension of Christ. Um, really important, and we forget the ascension of Christ. We talk about his death, we talk about his resurrection, but his ascension, he ascends to the throne in heaven where now he rules as king of kings and lord of lords and he's directing his people. So we're going to see in this Acts chapter 16 that Jesus establishes or affirms or confirms his rule over all, even the demonic forces in that will be encountered in Philippi. He is Lord over pagan gods. He is Lord over even physical confinement. He rules over all. That's one of the big themes that we want to deal with. And so he's also expanding his church because remember, one of the big, uh, the big themes of Acts is that you go into all the world. I'm sorry, you will be my disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we're in the uttermost parts of the world. Earth and the, the kingdom of God is expanding, um, and so we want to continue to see that theme. And so, a couple of couple of events that we should uh, note, or as I, as as we as we look at this text, we need to remind ourselves that this text tells us something about Christ. In fact, it tells us a lot about Christ. And so, I hope that as we we listen, that we are encouraged in our hearts about who Christ is, whom it is that we. Um, uh, have been purchased by who do we um, who is our king who is our lord to whom have we committed our lives and I hope you will be encouraged because we will learn something about Christ and I believe that this text also informs us a little bit about what it means to be a disciple what does it mean to be a follower of Christ all right so um, and so I would encourage you today I hope that Everyone in here um, has made a commitment and is following Christ. But if you haven't, I pray that you would listen carefully and see the per- see clearly the person of Christ and what it means to be a follower of him. And if you have um, called upon the Lord and you have been born again, I hope that you will see something new about your Lord and Savior and maybe also a little bit about what it means to follow him. So if you will... Join me and follow along with me as I read in Acts chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 16 through 40. So um, here we go. Listen to God's word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing after, for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word 
of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed the wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to you, sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out from the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So we have God's holy word. We begin our text today with this uh, demon-possessed girl. She's a doubly bound girl. Um, it's an encounter with a demon-possessed slave girl as, they, as the missionaries are on their way to prayer. So probably this is a Sabbath day. They're on their way to prayer and they are encountered uh, or they encounter this slave girl who is possessed um, by a demon spirit and she is doubly bound. First of all, she's bound by the men who enslaved her. She's bound by the men who have enslaved her. Um, She is seen not for any intrinsic value that she may have as a person created in the image of God. She is valued only as a commodity. That's all she is. She is a commodity. That is, they have assigned a value to her. And her value is such and such. And once that value is no longer realized, she has no worth in the eyes of these individuals. She is valued only for her monetary potential. And that is it. We live in a society that has the ability to commodify anything. In fact, I think I saw on eBay a while back, um, somebody had a potato chip that looked like Elvis Presley. Or they thought looked like Elvis Presley. They assigned a value to it. It sold for 50 bucks. Folks, we can commodify a potato chip and assign it a value of 50 bucks because we think it looks like a particular famous person or perhaps a piece of toast that people think has the, bears the image of the Virgin Mary. You'll find those also on eBay and find something like that being sold for We can commodify a piece of toast. It's a shame when we commodify a person. And we assign to them a value simply of what they are worth to me. And if they are weak, infirmed, old, young, and they, they, they garner no value to me, We have this demonic, hellish conclusion that they are only worth what I think, what value I can assign to them. And if they serve me no value, then we can get rid of them and dispose of them. And this is this young girl valued only for her monetary potential. And so she is enslaved by these men. But as I said, she's doubly bound. She's also bound by hell. She is possessed by the literal phrase here, a Pythonian spirit, or you might say a Python spirit. Now, here's what this means. Um, Pythia, Pythia was the name of the high priestess of the temple of Apollo at Delphi. So in the city of Delphi, there is a temple Um, dedicated to the Roman god Apollos. The high priestess of that temple uh, was was, was called Pythia. So that was her name. 
And she is inspired by this Pythian god, by Apollo, who is sometimes portrayed as a serpent, sometimes portrayed as a snake, and has the ability or the capability of fortune-telling. In other words, she has the spirit of divination. And so this high priestess in this um, temple of Apollos in the city of Delphi has, um, is often inspired by um, the, the Pythian god Apollos, and this is manifested in the spirit of divination. And so this girl has that type of spirit. She has the ability, or the, um, per, certainly the perceived ability, perhaps even the real ability, to um, tell the future, fortune-telling a spirit of divination. And so we're on our way to prayer and we're encountered by this demonic spirit, by this slave girl who is only valued for her ability to garner her owners much money. And I want us to pay attention to, to her testimony because this is a little challenging for us. Here's her testimony. These, remember, this is a demonic spirit saying this. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So the first way we are going to read that we might read this is that this demonic spirit is telling the truth. After all, these are servants of the Most High God and they are proclaiming the way of salvation. And we might portray this demonic spirit as actually telling the truth. And there are a number of reasons why that might happen. It certainly happened in the days that Christ walked the earth. But I want to say... I'm not convinced by that. I have some some issues and we can talk about those issues. Well, I have issues, but that's not what we need to talk about. I have issues with that understanding of this particular passage of text. Um, One of the things we want to do when we interpret Scripture is we want to try to the best of our ability to understand it as the original readers or the original hearers would have understood it. So how would a person... A Philippian, a citizen of Philippi, steeped in Roman paganism, understood this. Well, that's a bit of a challenge because none of us are first century Philippians um, steeped in Roman paganism. So we have to go back a little bit. And this is one of the challenges of of being a... of drawing the meaning out of the text. But there's a lot of things that we can understand about this. And so if we try to understand this as... The hearers understood it. I think we have a completely or a slightly different understanding of what is being said. She's saying, these are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, you and I, from a Christian standpoint, would say, well, the Most High God, that's Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have to remember the Philippians had probably little idea or certainly little reverence for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would not have heard that. There wasn't even a synagogue in this town. Jewish influence was was limited at best. And salvation, they understood salvation completely different. So let's try to unpack this as a um, first century Philippian Roman pagan. Servants of the Most High God. You need to remember that Roman citizens in this day would have ascribed that title, Most High God, to any number of deities. Whoever is the deity that you worship would be considered the Most High God. So if you worshiped Apollos, that's the Most High God. Maybe you worship Caesar. He's the Most High God. Perhaps you worship um, an ancestor. You venerate your great-grandfather. He becomes the Most High God. You have to remember that the first century Roman pagans were henotheists. Arvid, got that? Henotheists. I'm going to test you on that. I don't give Arvid enough vocabulary words anymore, so uh, every once in a while I need to toss one his way. They were not polytheists. You all know what a polytheist is, right? A polytheist is somebody who believes in many gods, right? A henotheist is a little bit different. A henotheistic person is one who believes in many gods, but there is only one god that we worship. Do you see the difference? There are many gods who exist, but we only exalt one of them. So I'll give you a a modern-day example Those who are involved uh, in the Latter-day Saints, Mormons, would be henotheists, all right? 
They believe in many gods. All right. um, there are millions of gods. In fact, you can become a god, but they only worship the god who created this world. So their most famous creed goes like this. As man was, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. In other words, man can become a god. All right. So they believe in many gods. Many people have achieved deification, but they only worship one, the one who created this world. So that's the idea. So there are many most high gods. Who do you choose to be your most high god? So when this demon is saying these are servants of the most high God, he, she is not referring to Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, but whatever most high God you happen to worship. And they are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Roman citizens in this day did not consider salvation as being something that happens when you die and then you go and you live forever in heaven with the God who made you. Salvation was really to be a, a, a way of freedom from the governing forces of fate. So in other words, the whole goal, one of the main goals of religion was how do I overcome, the, how do I overcome fate? How, how can I make certain that bad things don't happen to me? How can I make certain that my crops succeed? That my children are not stillborn? That... My, that the weather um, doesn't destroy my home, that I don't get sick. How do I overcome those forces? And so it was through magic, it was through spells, it was through superstition, it was through rites and various um, religious rituals, and the goal was to overcome the forces of fate. That's how they understood salvation. So... When she comes along and says they're proclaiming the Most High God in the way of salvation, basically this person, Jesus Christ, is just another Most High God, and he is some sort of um, deity who will help you overcome whatever it is that you think might hinder you being successful. That's it. This is an outright, utter, and complete deceptive lie. Here's the lie. The lie is this, that Christ is now reduced to a means of un overcoming unpleasant or difficult issues that might confront you. He is nothing more than a talisman to ward off whatever might hinder your own personal desires. He is a good luck charm who will make sure that you are financially successful, that you are successful in your relationships, that you are, um, have a great business, and that you are well-liked by others. Let me give you another contemporary comparison. Pretty much everything that is taught by the Word of Faith teachers is that. So, I will name names. So, so guys like Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, um, Joyce Myers, this is what they teach. Jesus is nothing more than a good luck charm. And if you say the right words and do the right things, you will have financial success. You will be well liked. Your business will go well. And you will be a great, wonderful person. Jesus did not come to give you business success. I pray your business is successful. Jesus came to die and pay for your sins. This Demon is outright is an outright liar because Satan is the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning and he's lying here and now. And he's lying in this particular passage of text. And so Paul now rebukes this demon. And I want you to understand, Paul is doing much more than just rebuking some spiritual force. He is not just commanding this spiritual force to go. What he's doing is he is exalting Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Paul is not simply ridding themselves of some annoyance. Rather, he is declaring that Jesus rules over all, including your beloved Apollos. Apollos bows in the glories of Christ. 
Apollos is nothing because Christ reigns. There is no Apollos. There is no force. There is no, there is none of that. Christ is Lord. Christ is King. Basically what has happened is that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke have marched into Philippi and declared war on the forces of hell. And Christ has now defeated these local deities and these local gods. This reminds us exactly of what happened in the book of Exodus, though it doesn't it? Remember the ten plagues? What, what were those ten plagues coming against? They weren't just coming against, they weren't just plagues of flies or plagues of darkness or plagues of death or plagues of the river of turning to blood. These were direct assaults on the Egyptian gods. Direct assaults on the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians believed that the God of Moses was a God of the desert and he had no authority across the Nile River in the land of Egypt. Moses marches in there and says, my God is not simply the God of the desert. He is the God of the Nile. He's the God of the mountains. He's the God of heaven and earth. He rules over all and he and your gods bow before God Almighty. This is exactly what Paul and Silas and Timothy And Luke are doing a march into Philippi and they declare war against the gods of Philippi. Freedom in Christ has come to Philippi in power. Christ overthrows the Philippian deities. Christ comes in and destroys the demonic forces that are binding the people of Philippi. That's the declaration. When this demon departs, it is not just simply a departation of some unclean spirit. It is victory over hell. So you might think, well, that's pretty awesome, man. I'll bet you everybody's really thrilled with that. Well, surprise, surprise, not everybody's really thrilled with this event. And you can see why, because this young girl was a source of income. And if you want to upset somebody, hit them in the pocketbook. And they don't like Christianity because you just hurt our source of income. So we learn who their true God is, don't we? Their true God is not Apollos and their true God is not some other deity. Their true God is their own carnal desires for power and money and whatever money can purchase them. And so the the missionaries are beaten and arrested. They are then incarcerated. I like how it says that they were put, um, that the the prison was made very secure, very much like when Peter was... uh, was incarcerated, that he also was made very secure, probably in the innermost, as in the innermost part of the prison. So now we have Paul and Silas in prison. They've been beaten with rods, um, and they're in this, and their feet are in stocks, and they are in this innermost or secure part of the prison. And their response is... Singing and praying. Singing and praying is their response to their condition. Uh, Just kind of get ahead of myself. All of this is set up to bring salvation to a man. Um, Paul and Silas are imprisoned that a man and his family would come to know Christ. They don't know this at that moment. They're probably looking back and going, yeah, put us in prison. (laughs) That's what it takes to bring people to Christ. We'll take prison. They don't know that at this time. All they know is that they are in prison and they begin to sing and they begin to pray. I want to make certain you understand that this is not just making lemonades out of lemon. This is not just turning a bad situation into a positive situation. It is not spinning a a unpleasant circumstance and trying to make it a little bit more tolerable. They are not just putting a happy face on a bad situation. The Lord, they understand that the Lord who closed the doors to them in their missionary journeys and led them to Philippi and led them to Lydia, 
that the Lord who overpowers demons is the same Lord who has them in prison. They understand that. They understand that circumstances do not determine one's position in Christ. They are rejoicing not because they are in jail. They are rejoicing because they're in Christ. We're not rejoicing because we're in prison. We're rejoicing that we're in Christ and no prison cell and no authority and no magistrate can ever take that away from us. And whether we live or die, we're Christ. If we die here in this cell, we are with Christ because we're in Christ. And if we're let go, we're in Christ. And so we sing. Why? Because of my circumstances? No, my circumstances stink. I sing because I'm in Christ. I'm saved and been redeemed and being used for His purposes. And somehow He will be glorified in this prison sentence. I don't know how. I just know that I am in Him and He is in me. And we rejoice and we sing. Whether we live or whether we die, we are in Christ. I pray today that you are in Christ and I pray that today, whatever your, your circumstances, you understand your position. You understand your standing before God Almighty. That you now are in right standing. If you are in Christ, you are in right standing with God Almighty. And no prison cell, no demon, no governing authority can ever, ever move your position from being in Christ. That's good news. That's really good news. If things are going well, you're in Christ. You do not need Christ to be a a good luck charm to alter the forces of fate. You need to call upon Him and, and and believe the gospel and your position with God will be forever changed. And so... We have them singing and praying. Some of the other prisoners are hearing them. And then we get to this, um, this earthquake. And I was going to say it's a prison escape, but it's not an escape because nobody escapes. So I just called it the escape that wasn't. I finally kind of realized that like Thursday. I'm like, wait a second. There is no escape. Nobody escaped. It's not like Peter. Peter escaped. Earthquakes happen. Peter gets out of prison and he goes and, and, and finds the brethren and they're praying for him. Here's an escape and they all stay in prison. So an earthquake happens, which is common in the area of Philippi. Earthquakes happen um, uh, quite often in that area. But I want you to note the, the divine origin and perhaps even the divine purpose. This is a, this is a divine act. It is not a random earthquake. I, I've never been in an earthquake I've only seen the effects and the results of earthquakes. And they're always, um, they break things. Earthquakes break stuff. Um, they, they They don't bring order to anything. But in this particular earthquake, prison doors are opened. Chains and shackles are unlocked and everybody is completely unharmed. In other words, they're probably in an underground prison cell, probably in an underground place. And instead of being entombed by the rocks and the dirt after the earthquake hits, actually they are set free. So this is no ordinary earthquake. It shakes the ground for sure. This is truly, indeed, God's appearing. God is in this event. It does not entomb the prisoners, but releases them. And then here's the thing. The prisoners don't flee. Paul and Silas aren't the only prisoners. There are other guys, I don't know, there are probably murderers and thieves and all sorts of people who are awaiting some sort of trial. And they don't flee. This is truly a miraculous event. Well, the jailer is awakened by by the earthquake and he just assumes 
the prisoners fled. Now, here's the thing. If you were entrusted to guard prisoners and you lost your prisoner, basically you were given a death sentence. And so out of uh, in a shame culture in which Rome was, he decides to take his own life rather than have his uh, his name shamed by the uh, um, by allowing those whom he's been entrusted to guard by allowing them to go free. So he's ready to take his own life. And Paul says, hey, don't do that. We're all here. Which to him has got to be a miracle. What? Prisoners have an opportunity to escape and they don't. Something's at work here. And so he asked a very relevant question. What must I do to be saved? Now, I want you to understand, he is talking, he's not talking about the, the temporal salvation of what must I do to escape whatever fate I am uh, about to encounter because he's already been saved from killing himself. He's now asking a much bigger question. This earthquake has shaken the jailer's heart and he's asking the key religious question of the day. And it is a question that you and I all should be asking. What must I do to be saved? That's the question. It's the question of, it's one of the central key questions that every human being must ask themselves. What must I do to be saved? We always ask, ask, who am I? Why am I here? How did I get here? Here's the other big question. How do I stand innocent before a holy God? What must I do to be saved? It's interesting because many people today, are also willing to receive an answer to that question when calamity strikes. When the earth shakes, or their world is shaken, whether it is through divorce or death, or a natural disaster, financial collapse, or a medical diagnosis, all of a sudden they become very interested in eternal things. This Roman jailer is no different. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe, I've always defined it this way, to trust in, to rely on, and cling to. That is, you are going to trust in Christ. You are going to cling to Christ. You are going to rely on Christ. But notice what he says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say just believe. Just believe. Belief needs to have an object. Faith requires an object. And your faith really is only as strong as the strength of the object of your faith. So I don't want you just to believe. I don't want you to have faith in faith. I want you to believe on something that is strong, that is powerful, that is firm. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to note that word, Lord. There is no salvation without the Lordship of Christ. No salvation without Christ being Lord. I know some people think and want to have this idea that I can, be, I can receive the salvation of Christ but never submit to Him as Lord. There's no such thing in the Bible. He is Lord. What I mean by Lord, I think the best definition, I've heard it for many, many, many years. And I know one of our kids put it this way also, affirming it. It means Jesus is boss. It means he's the boss. You say, well, who died and made him boss? Well, he died and made himself boss. So let me just make a few comments about this idea of the Lord Jesus Christ being boss. Believe that Jesus is Lord. A couple of things. First of all, I think we make a really serious error. Probably not intentional, and I don't think that any, anything malicious necessarily is, uh, is intended, but I think we make a very serious error when we ask people to ask Jesus to come into their heart. Um, I, I know what you mean, and it's probably well intended. It's just... I don't think it gives the picture of Christ as Lord in the way that the Bible explains it. 
See, Jesus never said, come and invite me and make me part of your life. He never said that. I just want to be part of your life and let me come into your heart and whatever you do, I'll just kind of be with you. Jesus said this. He said, follow me. He said, follow me. Maybe the better way to put this is, I'm not going to ask you to make Jesus, to ask Jesus to invite Jesus into your heart. Here's what Jesus is saying. I want you to become part of my life. When Jesus calls us, he's not saying, let me become part of your life. Jesus is saying, no, you need to become part of my life. Follow me. Go where I go. Here's what he says. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must lay down his life and pick up his cross and follow me. This is what I know that doesn't get a whole lot of hands raised and it doesn't increase our salvation numbers. But I want you to understand what it means to follow Christ. To follow Christ is that he is boss. He is Lord. He's not just taking up residence in your heart and then going along and letting you do whatever it is you want to do. And go wherever you want to go. And whatever your life is, that's okay. Jesus is in your heart and he's good and he's okay with it. And he's just kind of cheering you on. Jesus is boss. And he says, you need to follow me. And to follow me means laying down your own life. Picking up my life. And going where I go. Doing what I do. Saying what I say. Even if that means being in a Philippian prison. These men understood lordship. The Lord has me in prison. This is where I will be. So what must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe on what? Or believe on who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as Lord. He's owner. He is your boss. He is your Lord. He is your king. We don't have a concept of king or lordship. But he is sovereign over you. And he's sovereign over me. Well, the next question then is, or the next issue is that, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And I want to spend a little bit of time here because you have to remember when Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, this Philippian jailer probably had no idea who the Lord Jesus Christ was. Jesus died on a cross 20 years earlier in a remote part of the Roman Empire that these guys had never been to. They'd probably never heard of a Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this man, Jesus Christ? So what do they do? They sit down and they um, speak the word of the Lord to him. They share the gospel with him. They speak the word of God to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who is he that I might believe in him? Let me tell you. I hope that as we call people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will also be faithful to explain who he is. Because we've got all sorts of weird ideas about who Christ is. Let me explain what I think Paul said. Um, And there's a little bit of speculation here, but not too much. Um, Because we have Paul's, we have a number of Paul's sermons to Gentile, to a Gentile audience. And so we know how he appealed to a Gentile audience. We know that when he spoke the word of God to a Jewish audience, he would appeal to the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that he um, made a covenant with Abraham. And then uh, he brought along, and he brought along David, and he made a promise to David, and he brought the prophets who were bringing, who promised a Messiah who would come forth um, from Abraham and who would be um, a blessing to all nations. And if you would believe in Jesus as that Messiah, then you will be saved. You have to remember, these Philippian, this Philippian jailer probably has little idea of who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. Maybe a little bit of an idea. Certainly not much with this person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul, you'll notice, and we'll see this in two weeks, we'll see this. When Paul speaks to Gentile believers, he doesn't talk to them about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't talk to them about um, the forefathers of the faith. He doesn't appeal to David, King David. He doesn't appeal to the prophets. He doesn't appeal to the Hebrew Scriptures. 
because they have no connection there. Paul has a very, very different approach. It's the same gospel, but he approaches two different groups in ways that they can understand. And so when we look at Paul's sermons to Gentiles, this is generally what he says. He says something along this line. So more likely than not, this is what he's explaining to this to this Philippian jailer, that there is a creator God who is good because he gives rain in the season and he makes your crops grow. There is a good God and he is the living God. He's not like your dead idols made out of stone, but he is the living God who rules in heaven. And, and he has overlooked your ignorance in times past and he's, caused you to re- and he's calling you to repent because he's going to judge the world through Jesus Christ whom he raised from the dead. That's the general message of Paul to Gentile believers. In other words, it goes like this. There is a God, a creator who made everything and that creator God is good. Evident by all of the good things that he has given you. But instead what you've done is you've turned and you've worshipped the creation, not the creator. And you're falling down before images of snakes and, and you're worshipping uh, all the things that have been made and you're not worshipping the creator. You've turned away from the Creator and He's going to judge you righteously because you have rejected His revelation. And He will judge you and He will be right and just when He judges you. But He's also provided salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins. He died in your place and He now lives forever through resurrection and we also can live with Him as well. That's Paul's gospel to Gentiles. There is a God who made all things. We've turned and worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And we will be judged for that. But God has provided a means of escape through his son who died for your sins and raised in glory and lives forever. And you can have salvation in his name. This is what the jailer is hearing. And the jailer is converted. The jailer comes to a place of salvation. How do I know that? They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house and they took him the same hour that night, washed their wounds and noticed this and he was baptized. How do we know that he was saved is because he was baptized. Baptism is always the initial act of salvation in the Bible. That's how you, or certainly in Acts, when a person is saved, they are baptized. Which is a great picture. You've died with Christ, you're buried and you're raised to new life. This is the picture of salvation. So we know that this man received the gospel, that God changed his heart, and he became saved, and now he is baptized. You will notice the kindness that he shows towards his the prisoners that night, he washes their wounds. He begins to care for them. He's baptized, notice, at once. He and all of his family which tells us that his entire family is saved. And then he brings them into his house and he sets food before them. So there's hospitality. We saw that with Lydia. What happened with Lydia when she was saved? She was baptized and hospitable to the people who brought her the gospel. And then we note this, there is great joy. And there is joy. They rejoice. Along with the entire house of salvation is something that is a source of joy. find it interesting now that former enemies are now friends. A couple hours ago, this jailer had no concern for Paul and Silas. Probably just another number, another set of prisoners who I don't really care about. Um... Who cares? Now, I'm feeding him in my home. I'm washing his wounds and caring for him. This is now my brother. What a transformation. But that's not the only reconciliation that took place. The jailer has been reconciled to God. The jailer has been reconciled with the prisoner. And note this, Jew has been reconciled to Gentile. This is a complete reconciliation process. Those who were once enemies are now friends. That barrier wall that was between them, that separated them, that made them um, 
that divided them has now been broken down. God is now on friendly terms with this jailer. The jailer is now on friendly terms with his prisoners and Jews are on friendly terms with Gentiles. They are brothers in Christ. And so our text concludes with this, what I'm just calling the church in Philippi. Basically, they're released from prison. Um, and I find it Luke loves to turn things around. And here he turns things around because the magistrates say, you can go ahead and go free. And Paul says, wait a second. You can't just let us go free. You beat us and we're Roman citizens. Well, that struck fear into the hearts of the magistrates because they, didn't, they were obligated to give a fair trial to Roman citizens and now their necks on the law. They're the guilty ones. Do you see how Lucas flipped that? The ones who are charged with a crime are now the innocent ones and the ones who charged with the crime are the guilty ones. Luke loves to do that. He makes um, the powerful the, uh, the weak and he makes the weak the powerful. And so now they are innocent. They have been vindicated. They become the judges. Paul and Silas now become the judges and the judges become the criminals. Of course, people ask the question, well, why didn't Paul just say he was a Roman citizen before he got beat up? Well, it would have saved a lot of trouble. There are a number of reason, reasons put forth for that. and I won't go into great detail on this point and you can, you can research it yourself. Uh, some have just said maybe he didn't have an opportunity. I, I don't buy that because, well, I just don't buy that. Um, and just because the, the mob rushed on him so quickly. Here's what I think. Paul is protecting this newfound faith. One of the great themes in the book of Acts is that Christianity is not a threat to the civil government, but rather is a blessing to the civil government. And Paul and Silas take a beating which puts the officials on notice and they will be more prone to treat this new church with tolerance rather than just go and beat them up and try to kill them. Because this new sect um, by persecuting this new sect, you would bring your own criminal actions to light. Wait a second. You're beating us? Aren't you the ones who, uh, who uh, put those two Roman citizens in, sa- in jail, beat them up and put them in jail without a, pris- without a proper trial? Aren't you the ones who did that? Paul and Silas have pretty much done a little bit to step in the way and make certain that this new church is going to be able to have a... a a start without direct threat. So, they're released from prison and they're told to go away. This is a lot like Jesus when he cast out the, uh, uh, the demon from the man in, uh, in, in the, the Gadarene man. And he does this great miracle and all the people say, well, leave. <laughs> he cost them money and they want him to leave. Paul and Silas cost these guys money and they want him to leave. That's, which is the saddest, one of the saddest scriptures in, in all of the Bible. When those people begged Jesus, please leave. And you know what he did? He left. What a sad day. What a sad, sad day. Let that not be amongst any of us. And now they're saying, leave. We've seen, we've heard your gospel. We've seen the transformation it makes. We've seen what it does, and we want none of it. Go away. Well, they do, but they leave behind a small church. And so they go back to Lydia's house, and it says they encourage the brothers, which should be a big part of every church. That is, we encourage the brothers, which is interesting. There are now believers in Philippi. Isn't that interesting? There are believers in Philippi. And a small church is there. And let me just go ahead and put this out. There's leadership. You're going, I don't see leadership here. Luke got left behind. Luke was left behind. You're going, I don't know. I've read this text a couple times and I never see Luke being left behind. 
Did you notice the shift in pronouns? I know that you love that, right? When I give you these grammar lessons. But they're important. Did you notice the shift in pronouns? Instead of we, first person singular, remember when Luke joins them? And then we did this and we did that. Tells you that Luke is with them. But guess who left? They left. Luke stays behind. Luke is now, I believe Luke is the guy who is helping to nurture this brand new church filled with people who don't know the gospel. Luke does. He's with them. Paul and Silas and Timothy go on. They go on. They leave. Luke stays. Now you're going to see third person plural um, pronouns for quite a while. But Luke's going to join them again. We'll see. We'll see that happen again. I know that probably doesn't thrill a lot of people. I find it fascinating. All right? So, they left. Luke stays. So, we have a small church. It's got, a, it's got a, a guy there who can who can lead them in the gospel and help them to grow. you got a place to meet. Um, you you got Lydia's house. you got the Philippian jailer's house. You've got a couple places to meet. you got a, a small group of believers who are there and... The world is being turned upside down. The gospel is going forth. The Philippian gods have been overthrown um, or demonstrated to be overthrown. And Christ rules and reigns. And a few, I don't know how long they were in Philippi, but not that long ago there was no church and now there is a church. And they are going to become great friends with the, to the Apostle Paul. Paul loves the Philippian church. Just read the book of Philippians. He loves these people and they love him. This is a great, great Super strong relationship. And we're going to learn when the Philippian, in the Philippian church, eventually they establish elders and deacons because when Paul writes his letters, he writes it to the elders and to the deacons of the church. So Luke is effective that he raises up leaders in this church. This is a great, great church. Well, I'll just close with, with this. One of the things I want us to understand is that this is not just another historical accounting of You know, Paul and Silas went here and they went there and they went to this city and they talked to these people and then they did this and this happened to them and that happened to them. This is more than a historical uh, account. It is given to us to demonstrate the sovereign rule of Christ overall. I want you to understand this. Christ rules overall. If you're here today and you you are not following Christ, I want you to know that he is Lord whether you follow him or not. He doesn't stop being Lord because you say, I reject him or I don't believe in him or I don't believe that there's any, you know, objective evidence that he actually lived, died and rose again. That does not diminish him one bit. He's still Lord. And he's still through the proclamation of the gospel calling you to follow him. And I'm going to call you to lay down your arms, lay down your life. Follow after him. I guarantee you it will be there will be your life, our life will never be as full and satisfying as when we are followers of Christ. Even if you're in stocks in a prison cell. I think Paul and Silas would rather be in a prison cell in Christ than outside of a prison cell and outside of Christ. If you want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, then um, I would love to speak with you. Simone will speak with you. Um, Samuel, who's been presiding, will love to speak with you. Um, Charlie's in the back. He'll Nelson, there's a lot of people here I'll talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. The other thing I want you to see is how inclusive the gospel is. Because when we started the book of Philippi, the gospel came to a Philippian woman. It was demonstrated to a slave girl. We don't know if she was ever saved. It doesn't tell us, so I don't know. But the gospel was definitely demonstrated through, um, through and made evident in a slave girl. And the gospel came and saved a Roman 
pagan citizen, a man who had no idea about who God was and what Christ had done, and the gospel came to him. So the gospel is for for you, wherever you're from, whatever you, whatever your past is, whatever you think. What the gospel is for you, Christ is for you. He is not. He's not like the white man's religion. He was a Middle Eastern Jew. He wasn't white. Christ came and he died for your sins. So whatever your past may be, whatever you think you may or may not have done, however you think, whatever reason you can come up with that Christ wouldn't accept you, I am here to tell you today that you should not believe that lie straight from the pit of hell. That Christ, he's calling you. Respond to that call and you will be saved. Father, we come before you this day and we give you praise and thanks. We thank you, Lord God, that you save people from every 